0: Business? Home? Social? How about your health? Could you make some changes? Of course you could, but how and where to start? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. In this program, we'll help you identify and make the changes in your life that need to be made. And by doing so, increase your potential for success. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi.
1: Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi. Since the focus of our conversation today is leading and managing in a globalized world, I'd like to invite you to travel with us to different geographies where we'll explore stories of management and leadership, some that worked out really well and others that were not as successful. We're going to start our trip at West 117th Street in Manhattan in the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, otherwise known as SIPA. This is where we're hosting today's show so you may hear some of the sounds of university life in the background. Our guide is Dr. Bill Emick, the founding director of SIPA's Picker Center for Executive Education. Through the Picker Center, Dr. Emick has led the development of education programs that are uniquely designed for executives and managers around the globe. He's also a professor of practice in international and public affairs and lends his expertise outside of the higher education arena to government and other sectors through his consulting practice. Dr. Emick, thanks for taking us on this global tour of leadership and management. Please call me Bill. Thank you, Bill. So what I'd like to do, with your permission, is to start our conversation with a virtual visit to your farm in Old Chatham, New York, which is about a a two-and-a-half-hour drive from New York City. Exactly. First of all, I'm so impressed that with all of the work roles that you have, that you not only live on a farm... You run the farm, and you do a lot of physical work on the farm.
2: I think that's one of the reasons why I still have a little bit of sanity left. Uh, (laughs) I was born in New York City, and while I'm accustomed to it, the pace of New York for an entire lifetime, 24-7, is challenging. And the farm provides a totally opposite kind of experience. It's hard work, it's demanding, the weather can play havoc with your life, but it moves at a much more natural pace than New York City.
1: That's what what sparked my interest, actually. I lived in the Berkshires for a year and a half, and having that exposure was so interesting, the changes that I experienced, and how coming back into the city was just very jarring.
2: For me, it actually has become very uh, welcome. I look forward to all of my life. When I'm here for a few days... I'm excited about coming back, excited about the diversity and the the pace and how important almost everything seems to be in New York City, Um, but by the third or fourth day, I'm exhausted. And Then going to the farm is exciting because it's quiet and predictable and beautiful and uh, serene, and so much of it is within my control. Where in New York City, each one of us are just very small players in a very global stage.
1: Mm. So that's in your control, predictable. So do those come into play when we think about how living on a farm informs your practice and your teaching of leadership and management?
2: I think it does. On a farm, for the farmer, uh, whatever you're farming, in our case, it's, it's horses and livestock. It's entirely your responsibility. So seven days a week, 24 hours a day, those animals are in your care, and you have to be there for them. Uh, but th- while that might seem stressful on one level, on another level, it's, it's very calming because every day is clearly defined. You know, you get up in the morning, you have to feed the animals, you have to make check them out make sure their feet are fine they're fine then you have to make sure that their environment is stable the fences are all in place uh, everything's in order that you've anticipated the weather do they have to come in do they stay out so each day is, is pretty predictable you know what's going to happen um, and in that predictability even though it's a big responsibility it becomes very calming it's just every day is kind of the same which is
1: great It sounds like there's a lot of planning and organization involved.
2: Exactly. So um, when you talked about uh, a farm being somewhat of an education for management, I've learned uh, things that perhaps I knew but I didn't really know them, Uh, the importance of attention to detail, that the smallest little mark on a horse's hoof could ultimately take its life if you don't catch it early and treat it. So, tremendous attention to detail, which I found in, in the business world, in the academic world, in every world is very important. But you see it more dramatically at a farm because it is life and death as opposed to most management, which is maybe life or death to a career. But unless you work in the healthcare industry, it's not really life and death. Um, taking personal responsibility. If you miss the, the mark on the hoof, that's it. I mean, there's no one to back you up. So it, it's also taught me more and more not to look to other people for responsibility for things that go wrong, to take personal responsibility for everything, and then just hard work. It just good things come when you work hard. Good things come when you take personal responsibility.
1: So we have attention to detail, personal responsibility, and hard work. As management and leadership lessons from the farm. I think those are
2: very important lessons. And then finding good people, again. um, One of the things you learn at a farm is that the typical way that we look for people in in an organizational environment is resumes and um, achievements that are not necessarily really knowledge of people. Um, And we tend to make judgments based on categories of, well, this person looks like they'd fit this role. On a farm, people, the kinds of folks who work on a farm are a wide array of different kinds of people, many of whom who have not been successful in other areas of life. But they care um, and they're committed to the work. And the work is work that you can learn. And I guess maybe another lesson I've learned is that you'd be surprised what people are capable of if they're given the opportunity and the right instruction. So it's taught me to be much more open about recruiting people. Mm
1: -hmm. And you, you talk about certain competencies that are important for leaders to master in our global context, and you yourself have been foundational to creating programs for leaders all over the world.
2: I think one of the most important things that leaders and managers, and we can talk a little bit about the difference between the two, at least as I see it, is to recognize something that seems obvious, but most people don't recognize it, and that is the vast majority of responsibilities of leaders and managers is dealing with people. If you understand people, if you seek to understand and learn about them, your ability to succeed is enhanced tremendously and I think too often people view it as uh, almost an academic intellectual exercise. I'll learn organizational behavior. I'll learn organization theory. I'll learn budgeting. I'll I'll learn like a cookbook. I'll learn all these techniques, and then I'll just implement them, and I don't need to speak or talk or have relationships or understand people, and in fact, You're not manipulating things. You're manipulating people. And if you don't develop an understanding and a recognition that every single person is different, you recognize that, you get to that understanding, and your ability to be effective, I think, is enhanced
1: tremendously. What do you think the cost is if you don't have that attentiveness and that value of people?
2: Much lower productivity. um, The inability to do something special. um, People need to be motivated. People need to believe that what they're doing is important. They need to believe that they are important. So if you don't develop that relationship with the people that you work with, you'll just get the standard punch in at nine, punch out at five. These are the reports I must complete. These are the things I must do. That's what I'll do. And my energy and my passion will go into other parts of my life. To be really successful... You want the people that you work with to have at least the same amount of passion that they have for their hobby, for their job. It's not easy to do, but it is definitely doable.
1: Do you think that the people orientation also affects what a leader's experience is on the inside of work?
2: I, I do. I, I, I believe that people are much more insightful than we often give them credit for. We give ourselves credit for it. We believe we have a high level of manure uh, 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 evaluation that we can tell when someone else is genuine, but we sort of don't believe that they do. And so, many times people will spew out the company line, if you will, and just figure that well. It, that's what people expect of me, and that's what they'll listen to, and they'll do what I say. When, when it's done to them, they're thinking, oh, this person doesn't really care about what they're saying, and they really don't really believe the company line. So mm-hmm. I don't really have to be motivated, and I don't really have to pay attention because there's no sincerity here. So I think job one of a leader or a manager is to, to really be comfortable in who you are and what you're doing, to really have a passion about your job. That's the only way you're going to be able to get the people that work with you to have that passion, to have that belief.
1: Mm -hmm. And you think also about the stress levels that are involved. When I was asking you that question, actually, just to be a little bit clearer, I was thinking about a client of mine who's an executive. She's president of an an organization, and she was talking about the CEO in a very high-profile merger situation that's taking place, and he's extraordinarily bottom-line oriented. That kind of work is very demanding. And people often struggle to have that opportunity really um, to take care of themselves. And I was just wondering, you know, being in a situation like that, I would guess for the person who's leading is difficult because it can be very isolating. And how do you reduce that stress? Oftentimes you reduce the stress really by being connected with people.
2: I think that's right. And I think also ultimately to understand why you're doing it in the first place. If you think about the one of the most positive things about being a leader or a manager is that you enable many other people to fulfill their lives. Most of us need a job to have a life. Most of us work primarily so we can support our families and engage in, and provide a better life for your children than you have and maybe spend some time on whatever your, your interest is outside of work. That's a terribly important effort. And that's part of being a leader and a manager is to recognize part of what you're accomplishing is not just what the organization does, but you're enabling the life of all the people that you work with. So that creates, I think, if if you focus on it, a shared interest in success. Mm
1: -hmm. So it's interesting to look at maybe the different lenses that people have. If you talk to one CEO... It doesn't have to be a CEO. If you talk to anyone who's managing or leading and ask them what their job means to them, you may get a host of different responses. Someone, one person might say they're ultimately responsible for the bottom line of the company. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So money, uh, particularly in the private sector, uh, that tends to be a bottom line. But money translates into also other things like success, like growth, um, like the ability to make a difference. So I'd like to think that some of the more successful companies in the world are the ones that recognize that their growth and their bottom line also creates good. Apple is a a current example of a company that makes an enormous amount of money uh, but also is beloved by many of its customers because of what the benefit that they get for their lives. So I think the two can go together. I think too often people think about, organizational success and doing good as two different activities and i think they can easily be combined
1: right that it it offers an experience of connection and growth and learning for the people who are part of it on the inside or part of the organization and then also of course for the people you're reaching who are your consumers exactly are there any other competencies or strengths that you think are really essential for leaders today
2: I think one of the most important things, two, two things I guess I would say, is the ability to deal with today and tomorrow at the same time. Any successful leader needs to be focused on what's going on right now, but simultaneously thinking about what the world is going to be like five years from now and how we get ready for that. And the second thing is an international orientation. Whether you work at a, a local nonprofit or a multinational, increasingly everything is really global in one way or another. So raising what I like to say our intellectual IQ for any leader in any sector at any level I think is critical.
1: What are some ways that leaders can do that?
2: Well, one is just simply being open to all the information that's around us to seek out information about what's going on in the world outside of where I am. The second is to think about how do organizations like mine function in other places? How are they similar? How are they different? How are they more successful, less successful? So those are two really simple ways that you can be global no matter where you sit.
1: Those, so those seem like very universal.
2: They are. They are. And I believe many of the lessons of management are indeed universal. Peter Drucker, who I think is the Albert Einstein of management, um, really boiled down management to some very simple lessons. Uh, and everything that he wrote, you could read um, on an airplane. And it was obvious. It didn't, didn't require uh, many years of schooling to understand what he said. And I think management is that way. It's, it's really basic.
1: And you're finding that in developing programs for leaders in different parts of the world, that there's a lot of overlap.
2: Tremendous commonality. Does culture make a difference? Absolutely. Not just uh, national or even regional culture, but organizational culture. So it does make a difference of who you're dealing with and where they are. But it's only one aspect. And the rest is pretty much standard no matter where you go.
1: We're going to take a couple minutes for a commercial. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, joined by leadership and management expert, Dr. Bill Emick. When we come back, Dr. Emick will share leadership success stories from New York City, Brazil, Germany, and India. Stay with us.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
1: Imagine you hired a designer to redo your kitchen. Working with an expert to meet your needs was such a high. You're enjoying the new feature so much that you're waking up early to write the book that's been in your head for five years. The raised caesar stone countertop and cushioned back stool are your writer's desk. With this comes the realization that all of the rooms in your home need to be redone to match the level of your kitchen. This scenario demonstrates my approach to executive and lifestyle coaching. It involves understanding what compatibility means to you at different times in relationships, career, nutrition, and other quality of life areas. It's also about elevating your game personally and professionally. Given my multidisciplinary expertise, we can address a range of needs that are critical to your fulfillment and success. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, Managing Director of Life and Career Choices, a global executive coaching and concierge practice. Learn more about my services and contact me through lifeandcareerchoices.com.
0: There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business stocks bonds investment opportunities financial news and talk we can help call us now toll free 866-472-5790 866-472-5790 voice america business network you are listening to turn the page with hemda mizrahi got a question or comment for the show today Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page.
1: We're back. I'm Hamdan Mizrahi with management and leadership expert, Dr. Bill Emick. Uh Bill, we talked about the types of mastery that you think are essential for leaders in a globalized world. What are some examples you can share about how these areas of mastery have led to successes in different parts of the world?
2: So let me start with an example, or maybe two, from New York City. I was born here. I was born very poor here in Brooklyn, which used to be a poor place, and now it's a rich place. And one of the things that I remember most about the vast majority of my life was that you had to be tough to live in New York City. It was by all measures the most dangerous big city in the world, maybe one of the most dangerous places in the world. And today, that is not the case in New York City. In fact, crime in New York City has pretty much declined every single year since 1994 over over 20 years. And what made it different was really a change in management. It wasn't a change in people. It really wasn't a change in technology, although that played some role. But it was a rethinking uh, from a leadership position about what the job, surprisingly enough, was of the police department. Prior to that time, and in fact in many places around the world, if you would ask the commissioner or the minister of public safety, what's your job? They would generally respond to say, my job is to catch criminals and put them in prison. And that was New York City's mantra and it was done rather well with that as the objective and the city just got more and more dangerous. And in 1994, we had a new mayor, Rudy Giuliani, who hired a man named Bill Bratton, who is now once again the police commissioner, and they changed the paradigm. They said, no, your job is not to catch criminals and put people in jail. Your job is to stop crime. Now, for some people, they would see that as the same thing, but it's really not. And the change, the result of reorienting the same people in the same department with the same technology got radically different results. Crime dropped by close to 30% in the first year when people just changed their approach instead of looking all day to find somebody who did a crime before now what i focus on is what is the crime of the day whether it's auto thefts or robbery or whatever pattern seems to be to focus on where is the next one going to be and stop it before it happens so it's a great example of how leadership can change the only thing that changed is the the approach of leadership None of the other variables changed, and the result was dramatically different. It seems like more of a proactive than a reactive approach. Yes, it is. But I think it's also a recognition of what are we responsible for. Are we responsible for catching criminals, or are we responsible for how safe the environment is? And they're not the same thing. And that can only come from the top. That doesn't come, that's not something that can funnel from the bottom up. One of the things that leaders do that's different from other people in the organization is to have the vision, to the big picture. What's the mission? What's our job here? That may sound very simple, but if you think about many of the jobs that you've had in your life or I've had in mine, very seldom do the people at the top explain to the people throughout the organization, why am I doing what I'm doing, how does that fit in to some big global picture? It happens very seldom, and yet it's so critical.
1: Right, so a key part of change management really is helping to engage people by helping them understand what the purpose is, what you're hoping to achieve.
2: And how their activities fit into that ultimate goal, and then measuring progress toward that goal so people can see, oh, you're right, this is making a difference, things are getting better. And taking it one step further is providing incentives for contributing to success. So that that can be a little bit tricky of how you structure incentives so that each person in the organization benefits, regardless of what role they play.
1: How do you go from the vision? Because there are so many people who really have an excellent vision, and then somehow it doesn't come through fruition. And you were talking about explaining the reasons for the change, engaging people, helping them to see what their part is, defining their part, creating incentives, measuring success.
2: So I think one of the reasons why as challenging as as the landscape was, people thought New York City could, I thought New York City could never be safe. Even though the job was daunting, the measurement was really quite simple. How do you measure safety? And in New York City, it was defined by the number of murders, the number of rapes, the number of significant robberies. It was pretty pretty simple. And if you ask anyone, really, who lived in New York City, do you think these five or six categories of serious crimes? Is that a good measure to you of how safe the environment is? And virtually everybody said yes. So that was great because now we, people inside the organization and people outside the customers – we're on lockstep on how do we measure success and we could measure it you know how many murders you you know you may not know how many rapes there are probably more rapes than you know about but you know a lot of them so it, it's a statistic that's easily measurable easily ve- uh, verifiable and then you can compare it over time so it gave everybody a good metric to say oh yeah it feels like it's safer which is important but I can also see, one of the reasons why it's safer is, in the beginning, there were almost 3,000 people murdered in New York City every year. Currently in New York, it's now 260. So, dramatic change.
1: You can explain it in concrete terms. You can
2: measure it, and then that can help you, as anyone in the organization, say, we're making progress, we're moving forward, or we're slipping back. Why are we slipping back? So... One of the things that Peter Drucker always said was, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So Mm -hmm. that's a key element.
1: And would you say that those characteristics are universal to all of the success stories that you've seen?
2: Absolutely. Um, So um, we mentioned, you mentioned um, Germany. Germany has had extraordinary success moving to alternative energy, wind, solar, Uh, green energy, much more than any place in the world. And they've really done it by, A, commitment from the top, two, easily measurable, we can see how much energy, and three, incentives. So they use the tax system for both suppliers and consumers to reward green energy. And so they will probably be the first major country in the world That by 2050, the majority, and they're projecting close to 80% of their energy, will come from renewable sources. So, again, it's something that it can be measured. You can create incentives. And if you have leadership from the top, which was clear, it had to be that way. The, the, The prime minister, the legislature, the major companies all had to buy in and commit to this goal. But they're making tremendous progress.
1: And how important would you say the hiring process is? Because I have two thoughts around this. So one is that the question of motivating people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are in, in an organization where maybe they're not so passionate about the mission of the organization. And maybe their role isn't really compatible with their strengths. So you have the hiring process to look for people who are compatible. And then you have the process of motiv- motivating the people who are there.
2: So in my view, you've hit on a number of the, the biggest challenges in management. One is recruiting people. How do you know from still the rather rudimentary tools we have? You know, send in your resume. Let's do an interview. You can read what it says. You can see the qualifications fit the job description. But how confident are we? that you're going to fit in and you're going to be happy and you're going to get along with everybody else in the organization. At least in my experience of you know several decades of working in this field, we don't have any good measures of that yet. We still have some organizations do very significant psychological testing, but if you look at those organizations and look at their successes, and they don't seem to be inordinately more successful than others. Um, so the hiring process itself is very challenging. And then in government, we make it even more challenging by creating a standardized test, which may or may not have anything to do with what the job is, and awarding the job to people who have the highest scores. And make it even worse, once they get in the system, we make it impossible for them to be moved. So now, as a manager, you take over an organization of people who are not necessarily qualified for the job that got hired in and may not like it and don't want to leave because they don't have to leave. So how do you motivate those people? How do you make that organization more productive? I think the only way, having managed in the public sector with both civil service and unions and having success, the three or four things that I think are most important is one, get to know the people and care about the people and and spread that philosophy to everybody. So we're going to get to know everybody who works here. We're going to get to know as much about them as possible, what they like and what they don't like. And you can't necessarily structure every job so that everything you're responsible for doing you love. But particularly in a large complex organization, there are a lot of things to be done. We could do a better job of matching what people like and what people don't like to each individual. So step number one, get to know the people. Step number two, figure out jobs and who fits in each job. Third, figure out who likes who, who works with who. who. So thinking more about the team structure, the interaction between people. And then the last one I come back to, my first one, is coming up with very solid, Measures that really get at what is the desired outcome of this organization and tracking those carefully. And if all the other things that we've tried to do don't work in terms of measurable outcomes, you've got to go back and start all over again. Mm.
1: And it sounds like also the relationship piece that you mentioned is really important because if there are situations where someone on the team is not happy or maybe they perceive that, There was a compatibility, and now there's no longer a compatibility. The evolution of the organization doesn't really match their evolution. At least that person might feel at ease with having an honest conversation about it.
2: Exactly. And, again, in my experience, it takes a long time and, therefore, a lot of money to hire people. And particularly in the public context or our large organization like Columbia University, for example, it's very difficult to fire people as well. So the, the human relations process is extremely time-consuming and extremely expensive, which to me translates in once you hire somebody, you have a great incentive to try to make it work. So we should invest, in my view, much more time once we onboard somebody into figuring out how we can make this environment productive for them and for us both. And that requires just a lot of intensive, constant interaction and feedback. How are you doing with me? How are you doing in your job? How do you feel about your job? How are the people around you? There's a a tool that's used in management called 360 analysis, and it's done by independent consultants. What it does is confidential surveys of your superiors, your peers, and your subordinates, and you get feedback from that whole 360 degree environment. And that can be extremely helpful. Oftentimes, I've been involved in these studies, individuals are, are shocked by how their peers see them or how their subordinates see them. And it can be a very educational process to help people get better.
1: So while you're mentioning that there's a, a significant time investment, it seems though if you look at things on a continuum, that there could be time savings when Absolutely. you make that investment and obviously gains in terms of the success around goals.
2: It's the greatest opportunity, there, I believe, to improve organizational performance. We look constantly to the next great technology, right? The next great iPhone, the next great uh, handheld, this or that. And I, they are beneficial and they are helpful. They have changed the world. But ultimately, most organizations boil down to people. And so the better we can have our people work together, the better we can get people to feel about their jobs and the more we can communicate what their job is and what the overall mission is. I think we reap greater gains than anything else in the workplace. Mm
1: -hmm. And if there's a change that occurs, then at least you can address that because it's, from my standpoint, doing executive coaching, it's interesting that one of the top reasons that people are interested in getting coached is because they'd like to develop an effective exit strategy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Absolutely. So at
1: least being able to establish a solid transition plan exactly. won't put the organization in a compromising position and it will keep the relationship intact and positive.
2: Agreed. And succession planning is a, a, another big responsibility of leadership.
1: Is there another quick success story maybe that offers a point that we haven't discussed yet?
2: Well, just quickly, and it's a, it's, a, it's a long story, but I'll give you a short one. Um, I, th- I think one of the things that will change management globally over the next 20 years is public-private partnerships. And if you look at Brazil and their experience with the World Cup and now with the Olympics, the world was pretty much thinking it was going to be a disaster because of the bureaucracy and the difficulty of government in Brazil. And by structuring it as a public-private partnership, Their reviews of the World Cup were very much positive and uh, were hopeful for the Olympics. So public-private partnerships can be a a really good tool.
1: Okay, so this is a good uh, tidbit to keep everyone with us. We're going to take a quick commercial. I'm Hampton Mizrahi, speaking with management leadership expert Dr. Bill Emick. When we return, Dr. Emick will share a little bit more about Brazil, and we'll also hear some cautionary tales from other countries. Stay with us.
0: business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network
1: imagine you hired a designer to redo your kitchen working with an expert to meet your needs was such a high you're enjoying the new feature so much that you're waking up early to write the book that's been in your head for five years The raised Caesarstone countertop and cushioned back stool are your writer's desk. With this comes the realization that all of the rooms in your home need to be redone to match the level of your kitchen. This scenario demonstrates my approach to executive and lifestyle coaching. It involves understanding what compatibility means to you at different times in relationships, career, nutrition, and other quality of life areas. It's also about elevating your game personally and professionally. Given my multidisciplinary expertise, we can address a range of needs that are critical to your fulfillment and success. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, Managing Director of Life and Career Choices, a global executive coaching and concierge practice. Learn more about my services and contact me through lifeandcareerchoices.com. Get a unique
2: and playful insider's take on the biggest stories in tech, media, and entertainment. Join Lori H. Schwartz, well-known technology catalyst, comedian, and geek girl, as she and leading experts in the media and content business dive into the biggest stories in technology trends, consumer behaviors, and its impact on Hollywood. If you're looking to respond to the tech-fueled changes in the marketplace... Then tune in to the Tech Cat Show, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business and syndicated to Voice America Women's Channel.
0: Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now back to Turn the Page.
1: Welcome back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi with Dr. Bill Emick, author, professor, and founding director of the Picker Center for Executive Education at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. We spoke about success stories of leadership and management from various countries, and we left off with Brazil and public-private partnerships. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that.
2: So over the last decade, many people have been talking about the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China as the forces that would shape uh, the world in the 21st century. Um, We've had an intervening variable lately, which is the oil shock and the drop in oil prices, which has had a very significant negative impact on Brazil, for example, also Russia, Um, and maybe not as beneficial an impact on India and China as you would imagine. Uh, In Brazil, in particular... um, The oil prices have also had a very negative impact on their currency. So Brazil is going through a tough time. But I think if you look at where Brazil was 15 or 20 years ago and where it is today, the same would be true in China and India. Even though there may be a blip on the radar screen right now, the progress in in the BRIC countries has been extraordinary. They've gone from being very much developing countries and very much closer to being developed and even leaders uh, in various sectors. So in Brazil it's been about leadership. They've had good leadership at the at the national level, they've had good leadership at the local level and they've had good corporate leadership albeit not without the stain of corruption. And as we look at many of the developing countries Uh, the one constant that seems to cut across is corruption. And in Brazil, that is an ongoing problem. Um, And one of the things that I think the next step in their evolution is developing a strategy, and this would come from the public sector, of really fighting against corruption. And corruption, unfortunately, gets accelerated, in public-private partnerships because now things that might have been done solely by the government with government employees, expensive and poorly done, partnering with the private sector can present the opportunity of getting the same work done much faster and much better and potentially much cheaper, but it also opens the door because there is competition for the work to corruption. So I see public-private partnerships. I gave you one example, which is the World Cup. Another, the Olympics, which I think will be very positive. Brazil has also used public-private partnerships to build subways, to build highways, to explore explore for gas and oil, all of which have had a positive impact on the country. But at the moment, as we speak, there is a, a big crisis in the country because the president was previously President of Petrobras, the largest publicly owned corporation. And there are lots of allegations about corruption between Petrobras and the government. So, Brazil is a story of success, but success not without problems. Public private partnerships as a major tool to help the development, but also a tool that brings with it danger of corruption. So, it, it's an ongoing story. It's a story that has Success and failure. Um, I think, in the long run, it will be uh, it will be a big success story.
1: So, putting on your advisory hat, are there any thoughts you have about how to move forward from all of this?
2: Yes, and I think it's 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 beguilingly simple. Um, many countries, like Brazil, try to fight against corruption by passing extensive laws that hundreds of pages of you can't do this and you can't do that and all these processes, which I think in the long run actually increases corruption because no one can understand that and the process takes forever. So the short circuit, if I'm a private person, is I go to the person who's administering the thing and I say, you know, here's a bundle of cash. Can you like fill out everything and get it right? And that, that's what's been happening. I think the, the easiest thing to fight against corruption, and it's never easy, is transparency. The more you make the documents public, the more you engage the media and This is when the bid package will go out. These are the criteria. These are the people who are eligible to bid. Then they bid. Make the bid documents public. Let everybody know what's going on. Once everybody knows, it's very difficult to build in corruption because I know what your bid is, I know what it is. And if the, the person who didn't submit the most competitive proposal wins, everyone will know. So transparency is the key. And a strong, so you need two things. You need a process that's transparent and you need a strong, aggressive media sector to go after that. Increasingly with the internet, the, the media sector can be from everywhere in the world but requiring transparency I think is, is the key step
1: I thought where you were first going with your point was about making things easier making a goal easier to accomplish making a collaboration or strategic partnership easier
2: well I think by by cutting the bureaucracy cutting the red tape cutting the forms that does make it easier
1: mm-hmm. yeah so you mentioned India yes is there a lesson that we can take away
2: so India is another example of phenomenal success if you compare it to itself. So if you look at where India was 50, 60, 70 years ago, you look at India today, it's phenomenally better uh, for everyone. So all boats have risen, albeit the people at the bottom are still relative to where they should be. They're still very, very low. They're just better than they were. So the challenge in India is uh, there are many challenges. There are a lot of people, over a billion people. That's a huge challenge just in organization. The second is a government that is similar to Brazil, very rule-driven, very legally driven, uh, very process-oriented. And that process, again, designed to, to combat corruption has really encouraged corruption and kind of gray of corruption, which is insider dealing. In India, if you're not an Indian and an Indian-owned business, it is very difficult to compete. And so as you reduce competition, as competition is less open, the danger of getting not as good outcomes for the same or even a higher price is there. So that's still there in India. The second thing that, is challenging in India is reaching everyone with the benefits. So the argument that that critics would say is yes, for an emerging middle class and for the people at the top, it's been a miracle. But for the for the poor for the rural populations, things, have, not, things haven't changed that much. But I I'm an optimist and I see many. Signs, and, and one of them is, is the use of technology in government programs to make programs more accessible to people throughout India and to cut corruption. And if you're interested, we could talk a little bit about that. Mm.
1: Is, is there a quick point that you might be able to make around that?
2: So the quick point is, one, they're using technology to identify every individual fingerprint and iris scan for every single citizen in, in India. And then making benefits available through mobile banking on smartphones and giving poor people smartphones. So what that will do is, one, assure that your benefits to you can only be used by you and they can move with you to virtually any place that has a government terminal. So it's a way to make benefits accessible, to make sure that they go to the people that they're supposed to go to and that they can't be Stolen. Mm-hmm. So,
1: it's an interesting point that you're making with regard to management and leadership. Is who are the people who benefit Absolutely. from the initiatives and thinking about the goal of really expanding the benefits to a broader range of people?
2: I think here, you know, sitting here in the United States, I think the biggest single challenge facing the United States today is inequality. So here our challenge is not like India where you have people who are are really, really, really poor, large numbers of people who are on the verge of uh, real danger to their health. Whereas here, while there is some of that, mostly the problem is the unfairness of the society where the people at the top have so, so much and have gotten so much more. And particularly here, the people in the middle class and the working class who have actually seen their standard of living decline over the last decade. So the measurement of those outcomes need to include not just the net result, but also who shares in that result. How, how, how are the benefits, the profits, the, the education, the health care, how, how, how do those benefits align across the population?
1: Are there examples of places where you've seen they've actually been able to help a broader group of people?
2: Well, one of the most controversial areas uh, in the world in terms of public policy is elementary and secondary education, and the stories from the U.S. And, and from other places around Europe and in Africa, in Latin America, has been failing public schools and what to do about it. So we could look at three examples where countries have taken very different paths, all of which have some success. So in Brazil, for example, which we've been talking a lot about, they made the decision rather than go with charter schools or NGOs involved in the education system, that they would fix the public schools. The decision was made from the top by the education minister. She committed herself to getting more money for the schools, which they did and to training teachers. So in some places, the idea is the teachers aren't good enough, so we'll go to the private sector and get new teachers. In Brazil, they decided, let's get some money for training teachers and, again, engage the teachers in how we're going to measure success and how we're going to make the comparisons. And it's been quite successful. So, again, it's not solved. The answers are not there, but they're making progress using the existing system and fixing it. In New York City, here where we sit, uh, I went to public schools when I was younger. They were good. Then for a long time, they became terrible. Uh, When Mike Bloomberg was the mayor, he asked for direct responsibility to try to fix the school system. And the way we've been trying to fix it is setting up what are called charter schools, which are privately funded schools, for-profit and non-profit, which compete with the public schools. The public school system is still there. They have also created smaller magnet schools which compete for students and if you look at the macro output the the graduation rates are up test scores are up it's been successful again problems still there but at least we're making progress Mm -hmm. and then in India they made an entirely different decision which is that the public system is broken they have committed themselves to turning over all the public schools to NGOs some very very small neighborhood-based, run by small community-based organizations. And again, as we've seen in New York and in Brazil, uh, the initial results are quite positive. The student learning has gone up, attendance has gone up, and we have very hopeful signs that this may be the way forward for India. So three very different solutions to the same kind of issue uh, and a a critical public policy issue for everywhere. Um, So I'm encouraged by that.
1: Mm -hmm. it seems based on the illustrations that you've offered from the standpoint of management and leadership looking at the different roles in an organization for example, the role of a teacher the role of a teacher is not just to teach right? in the scenario that you described the teacher is also an engineer, so to speak Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the teacher really is part of the mission around making sure that things work and understanding what measurements are being used and where the organization is and where that particular individual is around outcomes? The
2: teacher and the the local school principal. So in all of these models, there is much more decentralization to a school-based and neighborhood-based approach, uh, giving more authority to the principal to pick the teachers, to have flexibility in determining the curriculum so that it fits the as we discussed earlier, fits the culture of the neighborhood, the culture of the families that live there. And that makes a difference. You're not changing how you read and write and how you measure reading and writing, but how you teach that. The examples you use, the focus, maybe you focus more on finance and technology in one place and maybe in agriculture in another place. But uh, responding to the immediate environment of the families that you're dealing with can have a, a major impact on how well the same lesson goes across.
1: Drawing from your own experience also of of teaching, are there ways that you can also bring the students into that equation?
2: Absolutely. Um, And I think we have an example of a great success in a middle school in one of the most difficult neighborhoods in New York, in the Bronx. And a graduate of Columbia University, of our renowned teacher's college, uh, became the principal. And in talking with the students and the parents, the students said to him, and so did the parents, there are only two things that our kids care about. They care about using technology and they care about finance. Those are the two things that they think will determine their future. So virtually all the curriculum is some way related to money and how transactions happen in, in a field of endeavor. So the importance is not the technology or the subject matter it's how children learn so we don't change the way we measure learning whether it be reading or math what we change is the subject matter through which they learn those things and if we spend time talking to the children and to the parents and learn what's valuable to them we can create lesson plans that respond to those interests and they learn what we want them to learn
1: so we we, we come back to a key point about motivation really enlisting the motivation of each individual, and that affects the outcomes.
2: Management and leading is all about people.
1: Some great lessons in management and leadership from Bill Emick. Thanks for sharing these global illustrations. You can gain a deeper knowledge of the perspectives that Dr. Amick shared today through his two most recent books, Sustainability Policy, Hastening the Transition to a Cleaner Economy, and The Effective Public Manager, 5th Edition. During next week's show, we're going to make a different kind of trip, one that delves into your kitchen and garden to find ingredients that can either sabotage your beauty or bring anti-aging benefits. Certified nutrition specialist, Larissa Alonso, will talk about how you can prevent wrinkles, achieve clear skin, and maintain strong hair and nails, all through simple, cost-effective recipes that will help to keep you healthy. Larissa was a nutritionist at the luxurious Canyon Ranch Hotel and Spa. We'll bring the spa visit to you. Talk to you next week, and remember to make the grass greener where you are. I'm Himda Mizrahi with Turn the Page.
0: Thank you for tuning in to our program. Turn the Page can be heard live every Friday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week's show, enjoy your weekend and make one change in your life before then.